Welcome to The Invested Investor. I'm sat here with Luke Hakes. He's a partner at Octopus Ventures. Luke's here to talk to us about Octopus Ventures, being a VC and the success and failure that he's seen along the year. So Luke, can you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Yep. So I've been with Octopus pretty much since the start of the fund, so for 10 years now. So when I joined, it was just after the fund had been started by the four founders. Our fund was about 20 million in size. And over the last 10 years, we've kind of grown that from 20 million all the way up to uh, a billion almost, as it is today. And, uh, you know, been very fortunate to be part of that journey and work with fantastic people along the way. How many companies have you invested in? Do you know that number? Well, in terms of total investment, I would say must be up towards 100. We've currently got about 65 in the portfolio. Then there's a whole bunch that we've exited over the years, as well as some that have failed and we've exited in a not so great way. Okay. So what about you personally? In terms of actual deals I've done, I would say in some way or another, I've touched all of those deals, whether it's been on the investment committee or been part of the deal process. Actually doing the deals and making the investments, I would say maybe almost maybe a third I've had some involvement in. Oh, brilliant. So that's some incredible companies. And we'll get to some of those companies later on. But let's step back a bit. So before you were at Octopus, did you do something in finance that led you towards? So I actually started my career as a scientist, essentially doing big data in the biosciences space. So computational genetics, it's known as, which is a far more interesting term probably than it is a subject, certainly when you're at the coalface. Realized that being a scientist for the next 30 years probably wasn't what I wanted to do. And so moved from there into business by way of technology consulting. So leap from being a scientist into doing technology and management consulting. So kind of a hybrid between a McKinsey. So how do we do strategy alongside an Accenture? How do we actually implement the technology that's going to deliver that strategy? And I spent a few years there and ended up working uh, actually mostly at Goldman Sachs, where I was launching new business units for them. So if they wanted to launch a new bank in Russia, I'd be part of the team that put the bank together, put the technology in place, put the team in place. And then I'd move on to the next uh, essentially business unit in the business and pass that to the business to operate on a day-to-day basis. And then in 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, I left Goldman and joined the four guys that started Octopus Ventures, if you like, and uh, have been here ever since. So that science background and obviously leading into business, is that what you use as a background for how you invest? I think it's valuable in two different ways. So I think one, being able to assess and interrogate in a very analytical way companies that come to us. Certainly in the early days when I was at the coalface doing the analysis of these businesses, was super valuable. So, you know, being able to set some hypothesis, test those hypotheses as I'm working with businesses and helping them think through that, being able to look at counterfactuals and how do you make assessments of the way things work, I think was super helpful. And actually just understanding deep technology and frontier technology. Whilst I did the majority of my work in the genetic space, I'm a massive science nerd. So, I have a really broad interest across physics and biosciences and actually engineering and being able to span all those disciplines, given that in the early days, Octopus was very much a generalist and we still are a generalist, but having that breadth of knowledge, actually interest, excitement, and to some extent experience, 
you know, really helped me identify companies in the early days. And actually, that core analytical skill set is still useful even today. Is that what you kind of look for when you are hiring here? I think for me, the two things we look for, we look for raw intellectual horsepower. So that doesn't necessarily mean scientists. It just means somebody that is smart, can figure things out, is a self-starter. And we couple that with cultural ad. So we've got a very strong belief in having a diverse team in as much as a diverse team improves our performance. So we try and hire for diversity. And for us, that's cultural ad rather than cultural fit. So when you look across our team, we've got a really very interesting mix of different personality types, different backgrounds, different subject matters, different experiences, because we believe having that holistic and diverse set of individuals enables us to make better assessments as a team when there's no specific expert in a specific area. So let's go back to the companies that you've invested in and sat on probably the board of quite a few. What was your first one to do with your science background then? So the first business I ever got involved in was actually in relation to my background. So uh, it's a long story, but I'll cut the story very short given the time we've got. When I interviewed for the job, I asked the team what businesses they were currently looking at. And there was a company called eTherapeutics uh, still exists, um, still operating, has since raised, I think, 60 million since we made our initial investment. And I'd said, you know, what does it do? And it turned out that eTherapeutics did drug discovery using a systems biology approach, which was actually, you know, using systems biology and network analysis to determine the effectiveness of things in a network was really what my PhD was on. So just by chance, on the day that I turned up, um, the guys were looking at a business that probably only six people in the world had any real insight into. And it just so happened that I was one of those six people. So, you know, if if there was ever a fate, I guess that was potentially an example of it. (laughs) That's absolutely brilliant. Pretty recent example of a business that was very successful in a very short period of time. That would be something like Magic Pony, you know, a company we were only invested in for uh, 18 months or so and essentially went from absolutely nothing to being acquired by Twitter in that period. You know, an extraordinarily successful company in terms of returns, but actually a business that hadn't proven that much at the point that it was acquired. So, you know, in the case of Magic Pony, they had an absolutely world-class team and that is an enormous driver of value and success and maybe we can pick on that later. But they were also addressing a problem that was super interesting to the market, which was video. And obviously, you know, today video makes up an enormous part of the traffic that's on the internet and is increasingly an asset that's being leveraged by all of the major tech players in various different ways, goes without saying. More interestingly, they're also doing something in the AI space with video, which de facto makes them an interesting company to investors, even without investors knowing anything about it, but actually also makes them an interesting company or made them an interesting company with respect to the acquirer and the type of talent that it would be acquiring when it bought the business. And finally, they found themselves in a situation timing-wise that was absolutely perfect in as much as Twitter had just announced that they were focusing a lot on video and it so happened that they didn't have a video team and we had one of the most interesting video teams in the market so you know so a little bit of right place right time right or? team right place right time you know i think it's often said that you know success is a combination of talent and luck and great success is a combination of talent and lots of luck in this case i think you know there was quite a lot of luck there but there was an enormous amount of talent as well 
you know, one company that I'll mention now, which is still to be proven, but I think is becoming quite interesting, but has taken a long time, is a company called Ultrasock Technologies. So this is a silicon IP business, so operates in the semiconductor space, which is an industry that hasn't been that successful for European VCs, uh, and as such, over the last few years has seen you know, very little interest from European VCs. And that, and that poses its own challenges for companies operating in that space, which we can maybe pick up on later. And Ultrasoc has been building technology probably for near enough, I would say, seven years. And it's only in the last two years that that company has really started to be commercially active. And by that, I mean really generating commercial revenues and growing very quickly. So growing of the order of you know, 150% plus per annum. And so that's a business really where you know, patience has been a real virtue. It would have been very easy for us, I think, to walk away from that company after a few years. Had we not been the kind of investor that really understood that this was a 10-year time horizon. And we're pretty fortunate at Octopus in as much as our VCT, our early stage fund, provides us the opportunity to have that long-term horizon. It's an evergreen fund, so there is no end of fund lifetime that we need to aim at. And that enables us to make quite early investments and quite early bets into frontier technologies that are going to take time to develop. And, you know, I really think that Ultrasoc is now in a position to capitalize on, again, what is an interesting market opportunity. You know, there's a change in the market now where Arm has been purchased by SoftBank and the whole industry is now considering this shift to an open source model, RISC-V, which is the kind of open source competitor to Arm. And there's a perfect opportunity for Ultrasoc to capitalize on that shift. So in this instance, rather than just turning up and finding themselves in the right time, you know, we've given the business time to be able to reach a point at which it has an enormous opportunity. Again, fantastic team, technically, big market opportunity, uh, you know, the, the things that we look for. Yeah. So they obviously thought there was a market before and you've kept with them until there is a place for them. Yeah, so they had a hypothesis that in the future, with the complexity of chips getting increasingly greater, there would be a necessity for their technology. We absolutely bought into that hypothesis. That's the case for many of the companies we invest in. The question is, how quickly does that happen? And then the challenge is, can you continually fund a business until it does? And you know, when we talk about failure, if you were to think about the three reasons, the three main reasons why companies fail... You know, one is people, and that drives failure around a whole bunch of different vectors. The second is making something that nobody really wants, you know, essentially product market fit, or actually, you know, just not solving a problem that's interesting. And thirdly, it's running out of cash. And that can happen for a bunch of reasons. Maybe you didn't have product market fit, and it took longer, and you ran out of cash. Maybe you had to change the team, and you hired the wrong people, and you ran out of cash. But ultimately, running out of cash is what causes failure. So we've talked about team, and we've talked about patience and then finding your fit in the market. Are there any other successful companies that you've had that you can talk about? Moving away from deep technology and looking at something that's probably a bit more accessible, we were obviously early investors in Eve mattresses, which though there's been some challenging press recently around their performance, the business I think is still going really well. It's just only growing at 80% per annum rather than 100% per annum. But there... Again, team played a huge part. In that instance, for me, it was domain expertise. 
that was the really interesting element. So Eve was the first mattress in a box business to be funded in Europe. Under normal circumstances, it's not something we would necessarily do because the product is relatively undifferentiated. You know, it's an amazing mattress, but it's still a mattress. There's only so much innovation you can do in the mattress space. But in this instance, the team had deep domain expertise around what it meant to scale a mattress business. And that's a commodity that is pretty rare, I would suggest, in Europe. The founding team had scaled a mattress business via Groupon. One of the people in the team was a brand person. So when we took the scaling knowledge and the understanding of the mattress supply chain and combined that with the desire to build a world-class brand, we had the ingredients and the unfair advantage that would enable us to invest in a mattress business and scale it very rapidly as though it looked like a kind of VCable tech business as opposed to something that might take you know, a long time, you know, typically in the furniture industry. And so now that's a business that's scaled from you know, nothing to tens of millions in revenue in just a couple of years. And, and actually, we floated that on AIM. And you know, it was really a combination of outstanding team, disruption in the marketplace, never been done before in Europe. It had been demonstrated in the US. And in this case, a kind of US-style funding strategy. So in order to make that kind of company work, we needed to think about how can we own the market? How can we own Mindshare? And you know, what kind of funding strategy is going to be necessary to do that? And unlike maybe historically in Europe, where European investors have provided small amounts of capital initially and then maybe run the business for a period to see how it goes without actually putting an additional weight of capital behind what appear to be good early unit economics. You know, we made the decision we wanted to build EVE into a brand leader very quickly. And so after the seed investment, where ourselves and DN Capital invested a few hundred thousand initially, we very quickly followed on with a few million and then a few tens of million, and then we floated it. So almost within the first 18 months of the business's life cycle, it raised of the order of 45, almost 50 million. And that enabled it really to go from being a brand new brand to getting massive market penetration and to being known as a pretty well-known company. That's a perfect example which runs counter to my initial comment, which was we can be very patient. And when we recognize there's a necessity to be patient in as much as the market may not be ready for the technology or you know, we need to help build the market in some cases. In that instance, we know people buy mattresses. We know the experience is horrible. We recognize there's an opportunity to change that. And the idea here is to change it as quickly and as dramatically as possible to catch everybody off guard. And that just requires a different approach and a different funding strategy. Brilliant. So let's spin this around and try and be as open as possible. Let's talk about some failures and why you think some of these companies have failed and what's gone wrong. We obviously have a bunch of failures to our name. I think if we didn't, we wouldn't be taking sufficient risk. Companies fail for a whole host of reasons. Principally, I think, from my perspective, it's people. Um, So that can be multifaceted. It's easy to say it's people, but actually, in some cases, it's hiring the wrong people. In some cases, it's the right people falling out with each other. So disagreements between founders or early team members or just failure to hire the right person into the right role 
or actually failure to move people on quickly enough once you've realized they're the wrong person. And having the wrong people essentially prohibits you from doing the right things in a whole host of areas. You know, if you've got the wrong people in technology development, you build bad product. If you have the wrong people in marketing or no people in marketing, you don't market. If you have the wrong people in finance, maybe you have no financial controls and you, know, you waste money or lose money in other ways. And really, when you look down at all the reasons for failure, they come back to the team. If you were to invest in a team with the best ideas in the world and the ability to execute better than anybody else, almost certainly, provided they choose something which is a big problem for people, which in theory they should if they're good people, you will have a successful company. I always say that if I could have one attribute that I could test for prior to making an investment, it would be the entrepreneur's ability to hire and retain talent. If an entrepreneur has that ability, almost certainly they will find a solution to the problem they face by finding somebody to find that solution. So does work in, in maybe a corporate environment beforehand or a management role or having had their own business beforehand, are they big bonuses when they come to you? It really depends on the stage of the company. So at a startup stage, the principal thing we look for is domain expertise, actually. So it's does this individual understand the market that they're going after? Do they understand the nuances in that market? Are they solving a problem that exists and that people think is valuable? It's no good building a product that you think is interesting. You have to build a product that everybody else thinks is interesting and that solves a problem. Otherwise, you don't really have a business. People with domain expertise tend to have identified what those problems are and have started the company because they want to solve them. The second thing is, you know, passion and a North Star. You know, what drives this individual? Is it a particular belief? Is it something to do with their domain expertise? Is it something else? And you have to have that North Star because building a company is extraordinarily difficult. And some founders who find a problem that they don't know very much about and may not be interested that much in, but see it as being potentially lucrative, really struggle. They struggle because they don't have domain expertise, and so it may not be a, a sensible problem. They then struggle because they don't care enough about it. And whilst you should, in theory, always care about the business that you're building, unless you care about the problem, actually, in the majority of cases, when things get tough, it's much harder for you to find the grit to continue, pick yourself up off the floor and say, actually, I'm driving towards that North Star. So we often see intelligent founders who've got a good business idea, but haven't really got domain expertise and aren't really driven to solve a problem. And then, you know, in our experience, it's best to try and avoid those kind of founders. And that obviously doesn't always happen. <laughs> doesn't always happen. And indeed, sometimes, and certainly in the past, we have been blinded by the excitement around a problem excitement around a technology, and then found ourselves somewhere down the line asking questions around, uh, you know, what's the direction we're going in when we suddenly find that the direction we set off in is not the one. And in the absence of that North Star and that drive, sometimes the founder can turn around to you for the answer. And that's when you know, actually, you've probably made a mistake because whilst we all have, certainly in the team, you know, differing degrees, and in some cases, lots of experience of working with startups, there's no way I should be telling you the direction that your business should be going in. I can definitely advise and challenge and connect you with people and in some cases may be able to add additional value, but you have to have a North Star. So obviously at the start, this was all very new to you, investing in companies. When did you get over the shiny object? When did you kind of, was it your first investment when you realized I can't just 
I love the idea. Let's just invest. We invest. Obviously now, a lot more knowledge to it, but there's something that I hear quite a lot where early stage, when you're just getting into investing, whether you're an angel investor or a VC, it's hard to get past that. This looks amazing. They're saying it's amazing. It's a world changer. Yeah, and I think that assertion is doubly difficult for a scientist because inherently, as a scientist, you're driven by problems, not necessarily the people solving them. Those problems tend to be big problems that are challenges for the world, as you see it. They may not necessarily be economic, and they may not necessarily be commercial. And so, there is required a significant rebasing of what does an interesting problem look like. And what do the people addressing that problem need to look like in order to make that commercially successful? So, I would say in the early days, I was quite attracted to teams of smart scientists or smart technologists that were solving problems that I thought were interesting. They're not inherently bad attributes. You just need all the other stuff around it in order for those to be interesting companies. And so. Very quickly, and one of the benefits of joining a team with people with more experience in working with companies and making investments than I had, was being able to kind of leverage the early years as an apprenticeship and rebase what I thought was good. So, you know, I'd often go into pitch meetings, come out, and somebody who was in the meeting with me would say, "What did you think to that?" And I'd articulate all the positives I saw, and they'd say, "Well." What about this? What about that? Do you not think that was a problem? Do you not think this is a problem? And then you get into a discussion. And so I think, you know, having an environment where there are others around you, and I put this, you know, this kind of advice to anybody, right? It's always great to understand what you know, understand what you don't know, and find people to fill in those gaps. And so, yeah, I would say it took a few years for me to find a level whereby I was. Out of that scientist's mindset and more into a true investor's mindset. You know, at the time, I probably thought I'd got there earlier than I had, and I was still spending time looking at things that I probably should have passed on in the early days. And certainly, when we hire new people into the team, we just hired four new analysts into the team. You see early on the kind of companies that they spend their time looking at and help them identify the reasons why they may not be the best companies for them. To take forward, or to spend more time on, or to do analysis on, and you know that sense that you get of people and the opportunity, and what's going to work and what's not going to work comes with experience. That's just the reality of it. Okay, so we've talked about people and possibly experience. What other reasons for failure have you had? Timing. So whilst I've said we can be patient investors and have an evergreen fund that enables us to wait for the market or at least fund the business to the point at which the market approaches it, and there is a limit to that capacity to wait and to the amount of risk you're willing to take with a company in terms of providing it with capital. So we invested in a cloud video production business, which essentially was trying to move video production from on-premise into the cloud. Perfectly sensible idea. And you know, in five years' time, that's probably how all video production will be done. What I think we failed to appreciate or underestimated was the investment that the customers had already made in equipment that was sitting in rooms on their premises. And whilst they loved the idea of cloud video production, they'd also spent a million dollars on on-premise video production. And the argumentation from them is, well, if you come back in three to five years. We'll buy your stuff. It's just at the moment we have stuff that works, and we don't see any reason to change it. 
And so the question then for the entrepreneur is, do you continue to try and sell this amazing solution, which everyone will use in the next five years, or do you try and find a way to address a separate market with that technology? And so in that instance, what happened was the business pivoted. So you could say timing is a reason for failure. The way to avoid failure, if timing becomes an issue for you, is to potentially pivot. And so you know, failure to pivot can be a reason for failure or having a successful pivot or not having a successful pivot. And what they did was actually pivot the technology into an industry that needed cloud video access and production capability today. And they hadn't got a solution. And that was a much more interesting offering for that industry. In that particular case, it was an industry that the CEO had no domain expertise or knowledge of. And so they were very, very nervous about going in that direction. And it was only by adding people around the CEO and by the CEO finding others to work with that they were able to get kind of comfortable and confident about how they should go about addressing that market, how big it was, how the players within that market operated, what the requirements would be. And I think that will go on to be a very successful company. Had it stayed on the trajectory of wanting to work with video production companies, in all likelihood, it would have failed outright. Yeah, the company still didn't succeed in its chosen vertical. And you know we had to restart the business, basically. But we took the assets and the raw material that were in there and pointed it in a different direction, actually with the same CEO in that case. It sounds like CEOs have come up quite a bit here about adapting, whether that's adapting to a pivot, adapting to life as a business leader rather than in a lab somewhere, for example. Have you had any examples where a CEO has really pushed back and you've tried to mentor them and help them as much as possible and they haven't been open to change, basically? Uh, yeah, we definitely have. I won't give specific examples in this case because the businesses are still running and the individuals are still part of those companies. But there are instances where we've had to step back from the board simply because you can take a horse to water in many cases, but you can't make it drink. And in those instances, the CEO is just very unwilling to change the way they operate. Now, that may not be around market direction or product direction. It might be around management style or hiring. And there comes a point at which if you're not being listened to and you know, a relationship breaks down, then sometimes it's best to take a step back and do what you can from the sidelines rather than have a proactive partnership. You know, we love to have proactive partnerships with everybody that we invest in, but you can't spend all of your time with everyone. And if there's an individual in your portfolio that isn't keen on taking advice and working with you in a proactive and cooperative way, then sometimes it's best to step back and use your energy on other companies that are. You know, in terms of people, one of the key things is not being afraid to move people on that aren't effectively rowing the boat, you know. So, you know, if you think of a startup as a dinghy, there's only enough people probably for five or six and they all got to row pretty hard. You know, if you've got someone that's not rowing, you kind of need them out the dinghy. And even if that's a founding member of the team, there comes a point at which, you know, often you have to replace that person. And that is a really tough decision for CEOs and founders and actually for investors. And I've never seen a situation where we have made a decision to change somebody and thought that was the wrong decision. Is that something that you advise to all entrepreneurs when you invest in them? 
It's about having the right people in the right seats at the right time. And it's about not hiring too large to the kind of direction we were going in. So there's no point hiring somebody that, you know, you're going, oh, in five years' time, we're going to be 10,000 people. I need a sales manager that's going to be able to manage, you know, 500 people. You know, you only hire for the next 12 to 18 months. And if that person's not going to work out 18 months after that, it's changed the person. But, you know, everybody's on a kind of short life cycle until they can be proven that they can scale with the company. Because it's not like, you know, you've got a steady state business. The business is scaling and the people need to scale with a company, and that's just hard to assess. So have you got any other tips to entrepreneurs? My number one tip to any entrepreneur starting out a business today from scratch would be hire good people, make something that other people care about, and spend as little money as possible doing it. And if you do those three things, you know, essentially you'll have a team that builds a product that somebody is interested in, and you'll get to a point, hopefully, of product market fit before you run out of cash. And that is a key tenant of any startup. From there on in, it's a host of other challenges that you can solve. But that would be the initial startup tip. As an entrepreneur that maybe hasn't got any business knowledge and never hired someone before, what advice would you give as a board member or a mentor to these startups to actually hire the right person? How do you know? And I I think that's a common issue, right? Especially where you have first-time entrepreneurs or maybe tech founders who've never built a team before. And the way we do it or tend to help companies is to say, first of all, we can advise on the core functions of a team that we think you should have in place, whatever stage the business is at. And then it's about introducing the person that's doing the hiring to world-class examples of whatever that function is. And then simply saying to them, you know, ask those individuals what they think, you know, you should be hiring for given the stage and what the attributes are. And actually, what are the interview questions they would ask if they were interviewing themselves? And in that way, you essentially get kind of transference of world-class expertise to some extent into an individual who's probably never hired that kind of person before. And it's incumbent on that individual in the team, if that's a CEO, to disseminate that captured knowledge to the other team members, because typically in the early stages, everybody's going to be interviewing each individual. And so, you know, everyone has to understand the kind of questions you need to ask a CFO if you're going to hire a CFO. So why not go and find three or four world-class CFOs and ask what questions you should be asking and how you should be hiring a CFO? And that's actually a strategy we use when it comes to entrepreneurs not necessarily understanding what kind of function they need in their company. So, you know, oftentimes we might say, you know, you need a CFO. And there's often a pushback from the entrepreneur that says, well, I don't think I do. Rather than, you know, me trying to convince the entrepreneur, what I tend to say is, well, let me introduce you to some world-class people in that space or with that skill set. And just go and have a conversation with them and ask them what they do and the kind of things they might be able to do for you. And I think very quickly, it tends to be that entrepreneurs go, oh, wow, you know, I didn't realize that person could do those kind of things for me. And all of a sudden, it goes from a conversation of why do I need that person to how do I find it? So that's obviously a tip that I can imagine you'd give to any investor as well is this connectivity. Yep. So if you are investing as a VC or an angel, connect people. Are there any others that you can... Yeah, it's about baselining. It's about helping entrepreneurs understand what good looks like. That's the challenge. If somebody's never hired a team before, 
they can go and hire a team. The question is, is it a good team? And if you don't know what good looks like in a whole host of functions that you've never had any experience with, you're never going to hire the best team, which is kind of going back to point one. Number two would be find the right investors. I'm sure every investor says that, but I still see day in, day out, entrepreneurs believing that cash is a commodity, truly, and not appreciating how different kinds of cash come with different headaches, benefits, or drawbacks. And really understanding you know, the nature of the fund if you're going to a VC, you know, where that fund is in its cycle, can it follow on? You know, is the fund an evergreen fund if you're trying to do something over the long term or that's beneficial to you? you know, that's probably worth a conversation. How much capacity is there to move through multiple rounds? You know, it's a huge distraction fundraising, so try and limit the number of parties you have to go out to if you can. And similarly, around board members and advisors, you know, I often see early stage founders collecting advisors and giving them equity because they think it's a good thing to do. You know, getting the best out of advisors is very challenging and you'll soon give away quite a lot of equity if you simply offer up a piece of equity for somebody to sit on your advisory board you'll find in many cases that if you do that without any strings attached, you get very little advice. So, you know, I would be frugal with the equity. I would be targeted with any advisors and I would be specific about my investors. How do you feel about the relationship between angels and VCs? And do you think there needs to be an improvement there or? Um, So we love angel investors and we'd love to work more closely with angels. I think there's often a bad reputation that VCs have with angels and there's some specific angel groups I think that take quite a dim view of some of the VCs in the market. I think that's historically because of misalignment, it's historically because of a delta in firepower if you like and and it's often because I think of missteps maybe taken by both entrepreneurs and angels in the early rounds of investment in a company. So, you know, I often see startups that have raised money at very high valuations from angel investors, and that doesn't necessarily chime with the institutional community when those companies come out to raise institutional money. And the effect of that is often that those businesses struggle to raise capital at the valuation that they've raised money from the angels. And then there's a down round. And, you know, I think the VCs get blamed for essentially pushing the value of the company down and diluting angels unnecessarily and imposing punitive terms, et cetera. But it's often actually that the business shouldn't have been valued at the value it was at. And so it's very challenging for the institutional investor to do anything else if the, the business is of interest. Clearly that changes from a dynamics perspective if there's multiple parties involved and you know for those lucky few that have that kind of excitement and that kind of business, you know, they'll get their rounds away at high valuations come what may. But I do see that as a point often of friction. We invest very much on angel terms when we do seed deals. We see quite a few institutional investors imposing Series A style terms in seed style investments. And I think that can grate to some extent angels if they're already invested in the business. If they're invested alongside VCs, sometimes that can be a benefit because they get to take advantage of those terms. You know, sometimes I think VCs can be seen as heavy handed. I think there's 
definitely some folks in the market that are like that. But just like angels, there are heavy-handed investors, there are light-touch investors, there are entrepreneur-friendly investors. And it really goes back to my early comment of understand the investor that you're bringing on board, understand their attributes, understand their way they work, you know, reference check your investors. And you know, I would say to anybody that came to speak to us, and whether that's angels or startups, is you know, feel free to ring any of our companies or any of our co-investors and ask them what it's like working with us and investing alongside us. And you know, I'd hope we'd get a good report, but in the interest of transparency, you know, we're happy for anyone to call anyone. And I think if you can honestly put your hand on heart and say that, then I don't think you should have an issue or a bad reputation working with anyone. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, you're all looking for a successful startup, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah, we're all trying to build big companies that do something amazing in the world. Well, Luke, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you on the show this week. The amount we've learned and the brilliant stories that you've told us are going to be hugely insightful and useful for a lot of people. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor.